At the Sports History Network, we're proud to introduce you to a new sponsor for our podcasts. It's Homefield Apparel, your premium collegiate apparel brand right out of Indianapolis. They've got incredibly comfortable t-shirts, plus they're officially licensed with vintage college designs. They have over 150 plus colleges available now and always adding more. Homefield digs through the archives and history of your school to find unique logos, mascots, and moments to make thoughtful designs for your school. When you shop today, new customers can get a 15% discount off their first purchase using the promo code SPORTSHISTORY at checkout. You can learn more at homefieldapparel.com. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Welcome to Game Film, the sports movie review podcast, with your hosts, Aaron Harris and Oz Davis. All right, everyone. Welcome back to Game Film. I'm Aaron Harris, joined as always by Oz Davis. And today we're going to be talking about pro wrestling films. I'm sure there's a few of you out there that would protest the idea of pro wrestling being a sport and <laughs> would label it at best performance art, while many would think it's a trashy form of entertainment. But there's no denying, but the amount of athleticism, training, skill that goes into it may just qualify it as both. You know, sport is defined as an activity involving physical exertion and skill in which an individual or team competes against another for the purpose of entertainment, which leads me to believe that pro wrestling, while performative, can also be classified as a sport. What are your thoughts, Mr. Davis? Oh, no, no. Uh, there was a period of a couple of years ago uh, when I was first starting Truly the Goats that I became obsessed with this question. Like, what is wrestling? Uh, and in fact, shameless plug, I've actually got an answer of some sort. This was actually the basis for my episode three on Angelo Mosca, who, like the hero of our first film, was first a professional athlete in a different sport who found that wrestling was a lucrative way to make money and stay in shape in his case. Um, and uh, of course it was for, well, we'll talk about that momentarily, but because what got me was, it's okay, well, it's not a sport, right? Because the thing about sport is there's always this random element, okay? Whether it's judging or just straight up clock or it's a game of points and balls, um, there's this random element, right? It's just like you don't know the outcome. But wrestling by definition, pro wrestling by definition, the outcome is foreseen, right? It's scripted to that extent. Right. It's it's got at least as much scripting as an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm. Okay. <laughs> so it's not a sport. Okay. It's not a sport. But it's not theater. Uh you just said it's performance art. Well, maybe, but at best you can consider it. Yeah, with the level that WWE, for example, is on right now, uh, you know, performance art is not about that, right? Performance art is more of that 70s punk thing, right? It's about the performance, right? You have to be there. And it's just this once, and it's not on TV. You know, it's about the energy in the room, man, and all that. So that's not really it. It's not really theater because it doesn't have a hard script. And it's not improv because there's like, so what is it? And basically it's, it's an athletic contest. We can say that for sure. Other than that, performative athletics, maybe. Yeah. Um, it, almost, it almost feels like um, uh, a hobby or an activity that kind of needs its own definition in a way or yeah, its own, it really its own classification. Yeah. It really is. It, it's that border between, theater and sport not to get too pretentious about it but people forget that at the very first ancient olympics there was only one sport right it was mostly about reading poetry which is like greek chorus stuff right, right. so it's like group recitals uh it's dance 
uh, they're even doing circus stuff, stuff that we would call circus acts, like uh, tightrope walking and stuff like that, right? This was the first Olympics. And it was thought that, you know, the, the stadion race, a long, not quite a marathon, but a long race, um, was also sort of, you know, that along that line, a performative arts uh, right. kind of thing. So <laughs> now I wouldn't compare uh, professional wrestling to anything that the ancient Greeks were doing. But you can see that it's blurring that line. It's blurring that line. Yeah, and I, th- I think to the point about like the WWE, the way they do it, obviously, I think in that regard, maybe you couldn't consider it like any sort of performance. But I think maybe at some of the lower circuits, you might have a little bit more flexibility because, um, I mean, I, I guess it kind of it's open to interpretation of what you could say by art. I mean, you know, there's people who do quote unquote body art where they just stand there and let anybody do anything to them. So it's kind of like the definition is always, I guess, up to interpretation. But I don't think there's any I, I think athletic contest is probably the best way to define it, because, you know, I mean, obviously you can make a contest out of anything. But I had a conversation a few years ago with someone like this. He was talking about what do you consider a sport? Like, do you consider gymnastics a sport, even though, okay. you know, he was he was well, he was talking about, I think, looking back now, I think he was talking about games, you know, obviously a game which involves strategy, which involves, you know, maybe unnatural movement, right? Like if you're run, if you're like a running back, you know, you're running back and forth in the line of scrimmage. If you're a basketball player, you're jumping at pretty obscure angles um, and utilizing strategy to accompany it. So maybe there could be a classification between athletic contests and actual games itself. Yeah. There's a, uh, for me, that question always comes down to, okay, golf. Yeah. Okay. Darts, you know, just darts a sport. Bowling, well, yeah. you know, I love bowling, so I would always justify it as a sport. Uh, there is that physical element. There is that random chance in a game like bowling. You even have a ball, but you know the level of physical activity is minimal. But you know, I would argue something like bowling. You watch pro bowling, and it requires a certain skill. There is like a physicality there. These guys are perfect in what they do you know and and that's similar to wrestling too mm-hmm. uh, you know that could be said about wrestling no matter what it is especially these days on those high levels it requires this this physical perfection this physical skill um right. that you know only what sports and dance really require. Well, and that's that's kind of the interesting about sort of all these movies that we're going to be talking about is, you know, wrestling kind of really got its niche in the carnival circuit. And that's at a time in which it was referred to as catch as catch can, which was essentially Olympic wrestling, uh, freestyle wrestling with submission holds. So for a while, you know, there was a real authenticity to it. It was um, not predetermined, although it did get to that point after Carl Gotch and Farmer Burns had gotten out of it. And people just need a way to kind of bring the popularity back into it. And I think you would agree that all these movies do have like this sort of carnival aspect to it that makes it seem performative, but also makes it seem gritty that you would kind of get at a carnival. Yeah, it's all about the show. Yeah. Right. But yeah, the roots, you can't deny the roots. and. <clears throat> you know, you know, even when they try not to, you get the shots of the crowd. And the most vociferous people at these things are exactly who you expect. Just mm-hmm. like at a football game, you know, uh, yeah. at a professional football game, or even worse, at like say a Texas high school football game. <laughs> you know, <laughs> even more, even more to the point, you 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 know what kind of people are going to be there. And it's just like, you know, that's wrestling. Even if you call wrestling a sport, it's never going to win any awards for for sophistication. Right. It's it's no cricket. You know, it's no Wimbledon tennis. You know, it's like there's there's not nearly the level of decorum in wrestling. And yeah, that harkens back to the card. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I think in some ways you can almost maybe compare it to like Wushu which are the the Chinese sort of, um, I I don't know how scripted their events are, but they're definitely choreographed 
exhibitions of martial arts. You know, obviously it does take a lot of skill. I'm not sure how much contact is necessarily involved since they're more focused on the spectacle aspect of it, but I think it kind of can toe the same line of being something that is certainly performative and for exhibition, but you can't do without the necessary physical skill set. I mean, for me, for me too, um, it, it's almost like the avant-garde stuff uh, yeah. that they were doing in the 60s and 70s because the audience participation is necessary, right? The audience is playing the role that they are expected to play. You really see this. It's funny that we say we're talking about wrestling moves because we really see this in the last scene of Requiem for a Heavyweight, right? Our hero is playing a Native American chief, you know, an mm-hmm. Indian chief, a right. redskin, even, if you will, in those days, right? I mean, the stereotype guy. But they're bringing him on with his accepted Hollywood fighting name. Yet, and they know who it is, right? He's a draw. Yet, people are booing him. They're doing the racist stuff at him. You know, they see he's a white guy. They know who he is. Well, he's a Mexican guy, right? In the right. Movie. Uh, he's American, but you know they see that he's not a you know Native American. Yeah, you know, they know that, but yet they're still they're playing their part as well. Now, okay, some people are gullible, but less and less and less and less and less. Right. One thing that that doesn't appear in any of these movies, but it is essential to understanding wrestling from the outside, from not a fan perspective, is the concept of kayfabe. You know this, right? This is the way that you can have something that you know is not real be real at the same time, right? This is how guys who are smart enough to know, and that's you know basically 90, 95% of the audience these days, to know that th- these guys aren't, they don't really hate each other. This guy's not really from Iran. This guy's not really from Russia or whatnot. This right. guy's not really from Africa. But... By the same token, they can act like it is true. Right? So well, it's, it's almost like going to the movies. Yeah, it, it gives it gives you that sort of it gives you like that sort of cathartic movie violence, but in person. Right. If, if you're at the event, and obviously you know you can watch it, the real physical hits. But that's I think that's kind of from that point is one of the themes throughout the entire slate of movies is that even though this is staged and the outcome is predetermined, that every hit that they take is real. You know, they may they may pull it a little bit just so they don't actually hurt someone. And um, fighting fighting with my family has a, a quote in there. Whenever she gets hit accidentally about the mistake, saying, um, "Yeah, I've known plenty of wrestlers who were paralyzed because of mistakes." Yeah. So there, there there's a lot of consequences that can go along with doing this. Um, and I, I think there is a habit just to brush it off because it's pro- probably maybe because of the culture around it, but also because they think because it's staged that somehow it's illegitimate. But I mean, the hits are pretty brutal. Well, it's one-tenth as um, brutal as it's supposed to look. Right, right. Yeah. Which is the thing. You know, especially, okay, like, I remember, I was into it. I was into it when, you know, the WW, then WWF was just becoming the beast, right? I mean, I remember when Iron Sheik took the belt from Bob Backlund, and then Hulk Hogan took the belt, and The Rock's father, Rocky Johnson, with Charlie Atlas, took it from the Samoans and all that. Okay, mm-hmm. I remember way back in the day when this thing was coming up, right? And, you know, I went to go see some live stuff. Now, I was going to go see live stuff in Concord, New Hampshire, okay, which is not that big a town. And these guys knew, right? So, I mean, if you were close enough, you could see that they were missing the guy by, like, five feet. You know, it's an off night. You know, that's another thing about these about the, these uh, movies, too. It's wild. If you look at uh, in front of the biggest crowd, they're giving everything they got. Right. And then in the medium to small crowds, it's just like, nah, you know, let's do the few moves. Let's get out of here. Nobody gets hurt. We'll go out and have a beer afterwards. And right. then when you get the really tiny crowds and the real minor leagues, then it's for real again. Then it gets super violent. They're giving it all they got again. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, again, like I've witnessed this. This is one reason why people don't take it as seriously as they could is because, you know, it is exaggerated. Well, it, anyway, I can still recall the first time that I ever saw a pro wrestling match on TV. I must have been 10 years old. 
and I had no idea that it was staged. So I'm, so I'm watching, I'm watching this one guy that just gets completely demolished. And then the referee or the, uh, the judges gives him a bad score. So he pops out of the ring, brings the judge into the ring. The guy is so scared that he gets on his knees and prays for him not to harm him. <laughs> he shakes his hand for a truce. And then he goes and just twists his arm and throws him down uh, face first on the mat. And there I am thinking, my God, is this real? Like, <laughs> so they need, to get the co- they need to get the cops in there. They need to control them, you know? <laughs> yeah, which is why, by the way, which is why it pissed me off in that bit in Beyond the Mat when uh, they're showing Mick Foley's kids at this event. I mean, you wouldn't take your kids to this event if they were that young anyway, much right. less watching their dad get the crap kicked out of them, and they don't know. And plus... They're pretending at home like it's no big deal, too, by the way. <laughs> you know, yeah, that, that daddy does this for a living, but he can take it, you know, and then you see it in real life. It's just, oh yeah. my god, you know, it's just like, as it, yeah. this is not good stuff for kids. <laughs> so, for the first movie that we're going to be talking about is Requiem for a Heavyweight. It was directed by Ralph Nelson, written by Rod Sterling, starring Anthony Quinn, Jack Gleason, and Mickey Rooney. And it follows a washed-up boxer that tries to find life after the ring and until his twisted manager comes along and gets him wrapped up in a pro wrestling match that signifies his ultimate decline. This is the prize-winning screenplay of Requiem for a Heavyweight by the famous writer Rod Sterling. Within these pages is a gallery of some of the most provocative characters ever conceived. To find for each character the one actor perfectly suited to the part, this was the problem. We solved it by casting Anthony Quinn as Mountain, a brass knuckle role handled with heartbreaking sensitivity. Jackie Gleason as Mache, an unforgettable portrait etched in bold, sure strokes. Mickey Rooney as Army, characterization that probes the depths of a man's heart. Julie Harris is Miss Miller, the striking portrayal of a woman in a man's world. A guy like him don't take to getting laughed at. Since when does a guy like him get sensitive all of a sudden? No, no, that's when he got sensitive. All right, then you tell me what is for mom. Why don't you mind? Should I be? Sure, I mean, you're pretty. I mean, you're, you're not just pretty, you're beautiful. Well, let me tell you something, Miss Miller. You better dwell on this. You don't understand the breed. You think when you put clothes on an ape, you make him a dancing partner. Why do you do it? I gotta do it for me. For me. You do everything for me. You fink. You dirty, stinking fink. Maybe you die. Take a good look at yourself in the mirror. And then say goodbye to what you see. <laughs> From the alleys and asphalt of New York City, from the fiery brilliance of four great stars, comes a motion picture of deep insight and crashing impact. Now, I first saw this movie, I want to say two years ago, and there were three things that stood out. Number one, I remember the movie being longer. And I found out that there was actually two versions released. There was the theatrical version that I think is an hour and 40 minutes. And then there's another one that was ran on CBS that was an hour and 25 minutes. So that's the one that I witnessed and that I remember was a lot shorter than I what I remembered. Um, the second thing that I remember, I remember pro wrestling having more of a presence in this movie because the wrestling narrative doesn't really come in until probably halfway through maybe 45 minutes and at that point you're kind of wondering when he's gonna when jackie gleason's character who plays his manager is gonna break the news to him and kind of give him that proposition (laughs) 
And I was kind of disappointed at how long it took to get to that part of it because I feel the last 10 or 15 minutes, I, I think, really shows a, a real darker side to the movie, which you know is a dark movie in and of itself. But I feel like they could have given a lot more attention to that slice of the story. Whereas there are some moments where um, it just kind of falls flat on its face, right? You're kind of waiting and waiting for um, the, the pro wrestling gig to go through, but it just never quite gets there. And by the time it does get there, I kind of felt like they squandered an opportunity. Because whenever you have Jackie Gleason, because for, for those who haven't seen it, the movie starts off uh, with a guest appearance by Muhammad Ali, who was yeah. played by Cassius Clay, as, <laughs> as, he was as he was credited. And uh, it turns out that Gleason had put money for uh, Anthony Quinn's character, yeah. uh, Mountain, to go down. I think in the fourth round, he winds up going seven. So now he tries to get him in a pro wrestling match to pay off his debt. But it just kind of felt like this is a storyline I wish I would have seen exercised more throughout the movie. And by the time it got to it, I kind of felt like there was time wasted. See, I thought he was just following the classic uh, thing you do in these movies, which is what was happening to the main character as well, which was this. When he met that social worker and she promised him that job, he mm -hmm. thought it sounded pretty good. He saw the way out, took it for granted that he was going to get it. Right. And I thought he was just doing that. I thought he was just building that up and building that up and building that up because you knew at the end he's going to get crushed. Yeah, yeah. Right. Like, like I was already, see, I was into it. I was into it because two words for you, Anthony Quinn. Anthony mm -hmm. Quinn is freaking amazing in this thing. He disappears inside this character, right, to great effect. And one of the cool things about Anthony Quinn is this guy was around. He, he, he made his last movie. His last movie was released, I think, in 2002. He died in 2001. I believe, but he had shot the movie. Now, this guy, if you look at his career, it's pretty amazing. He's actually from Mexico himself. His family is mostly Mexican. But through his career, he's played Americans, Italians, Romanians. Uh, I think it was a German once. Uh, it's amazing. I mean, and, and if you listen to the way that he speaks in this, not just like the boxer thing. I mean, when he does the line about how I talk the way I do because I've been hit a million times, mm -hmm. right? But besides that, the accent is just perfect. He says he's from New Mexico in this. And as someone who lived in New Mexico for a long, long, long time, it's perfect. It's dead on. It's not a Mexican accent. It's a New Mexican accent, what he's speaking. And you no, know, it's not that strong, but it's there. And he's hitting it in all the right places. He's just got a great ear and just great acting. You know, a lot of it is the makeup. Yeah, sure, mm. because he is ugly in this film. Uh, it's not just the makeup. I mean, he was sort of the Greek like eight years later. So this is not a bad-looking guy. So, you know, it was, it was part of that, but wow. I mean, again, he, like, disappeared in that character. But for that reason, I was willing to sit through anything as long as he was on the screen. Uh, it killed me. I was so into his character. I felt so much for his character that it just killed me. Not so much when the guy like revealed what we knew all along, uh, his manager, uh, revealed what we knew all along, but the, that, um, he said, don't worry, you'll get like 20% of anything I make. Mm -hmm. Like if he's working at a kid's camp. This guy is such an awesome dude that he's still going to give his lame manager because his manager wasn't very good. Even if you throw away the crooked stuff, his manager right. wasn't good. You know, he never got him like the big fights until Ali, when he had no chance. Yeah. <laughs> but, but so, so in that respect, I didn't feel too bad about wasting time. I mean, it is, well, the original thing was written in the fifties. Yeah. Uh, for Playhouse 90. Right. It was supposedly it's like a landmark in live television. That's back in the day when they used to do these weird one off dramas live. Can you imagine? Yeah. It's like totally opposite to anything we would do today. And uh, this is also the kind of the one that put Rod Sterling on the map. Of mm -hmm. course, everybody knows him as the guy who you know, basically did in one way the best television series ever, which is Twilight Zone. And, and in one way, I mean, because it was... Um, I mean, what, I don't even know what you would call that. It's not episodic. Right? Anthology. It's still, yeah, it's an anthology. 
Right. Yeah. It's really the best anthology series ever. It is the anthology series upon which all of us are based, basically, in American TV. So yeah. he goes on to do that. But I don't know. For me, I thought it was tight enough. I mean, it's very, of course, it's very like a teleplay. It's very like a play. Just these long static shots of two people talking, <laughs> you know, yeah. three people talking. Um, which is not to say that it doesn't make good effect in the cinema. I mean, the stuff when Ali is punching the camera is pretty freaking cool. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for the early 60s, that is some neat work. And I mean, what's really amazing is you get a sensation of how fast things really are. But still, you can tell Ali is not quite doing 100%. You can still tell he's afraid of, like, hitting the camera or something because he's not he's pulling it a little bit. But still, I mean, it gives you a great idea of just how fast that's really coming. I like how uh, whenever he crouches down, because when you guys watch the movie, it's going to be a point of view shot that he um, Oz is describing. And whenever he goes down to Anthony Quinn, he's like, uh, hey, kid, it's OK. And clearly Anthony Quinn looks so much older than him. So that's that was funny to me. Um, yeah, Qu Quinn's performance, I thought, was um, was really good in this. But for me, like Gleason. He's kind of a weird guy for me because I, I almost equate him a little bit to Robin Williams because here's a guy that I think was known a lot for the honeymooners and his comedy. Yeah. But when it comes to drama, I think the guy just really has certain roles that he really fits into well. And, and this is sort of a universe that I could see existing in the same space as the hustler right like here you have a guy who is obviously on the other end of the spectrum you know he's not that confident he's almost like a half-assed Bert um which was yeah. uh George C. Scott's manager but he, he still is able to gel and have like that scheming um comfortability of knowing how that world operates and at the end whenever he sees the social worker and he pleads for her to like stop filling his head with these false ideas of having some sort of life that doesn't involve taking a physical beating. I mean, it's interesting to see like how a guy really is able to tap into a certain dramatic sense that he doesn't get talked about a lot enough for, in my opinion, you know, it's like with Robin Williams, at least had a lot of recognition from like goodwill hunting, but you know, personally for Williams, I much prefer him as a dramatic actor than I do as a comedian. And I feel like Gleason well, in go. some ways, the same thing. There you go. That's the, I was thinking about that with Gleason, right? Because mm -hmm. with Gleason, it was okay. If he's on TV, he's comic, right? If he's in mm -hmm. the movies, he's drama. And that happened with Robin Williams too in the end, right? Yeah. Because, oh yeah, okay, if he's doing stand-up or a special or TV, he's fun, mm -hmm. right? But then especially, and you know, you talked about Good Morning Viet, uh, you talked about uh, that one, but the ones that people were really gaga over were Good Morning Vietnam and prior to that was uh, Dead Poet Society. Right, those are the what ones was, that they were really gaga over. What was the movie that he was in where he's, uh, I think, in a nursing home? Oh, no, it's not a nursing home, but it's some sort of um, oh, facility. No. Awakenings? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, De Niro? Yeah. Yeah, he was in that one, too, that everybody loved. Kind of slow yeah. for me, but... Uh, but, no, yeah, I mean, not, this... I, I see a lot of similarities between the two, and, you know, frankly, I, I think I liked it more when I originally watched it than when I revisited, but I'm so glad mm -hmm. I went back and revisited, though. Mm -hmm. No, I actually enjoy it quite a bit. I mean, again, like, like this is a, this for me, this is a tour de force, tour de force by Quinn. No, I had seen it before. I had seen it before. This is, this is one of those, you know, this one and the, the television version, this is the kind of thing that they teach in script writing class. Yeah. I mean, because again, actually... for me, for me, this movie hangs on the script and on Anthony Quinn. Yeah. Right? Because I'm, it's I'm not little... that complex a story. Yeah, so. I'm a little disappointed that Mickey Rooney didn't have a bigger kind of presence yeah. in the movie because he and it's funny that he's in this too because he was actually like a, a pretty popular choice for a lot of those live television um, yeah. plays in the 50s. So I think to have him in there was kind of a good, a good choice because he kind of understands the format and basically everybody kind of knew that this was essentially just a cinematic adaptation. You know, there's a lot of similarities, but yeah, I think they could have given him maybe a little bit of a bigger role, but. You know, ultimately, obviously, Quinn and Gleason and Quinn all together. Yeah. You know, if you have three great actors, not everybody's going to get an equal amount of the pie. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it, it was it was really about Quinn. And then, you know, I mean, the movie's about him. It's his story. And then the Gleason character was almost his, you know, antagonist. Yeah. You know, was, and speaking of antagonist, how about uh, 
<laughs> I mean, okay. I, I give kudos to Jackie Gleason because this is seriously one of the one of the best bad characters ever. I mean, there's just like morally reprehensible characters. I mean, what a mm-hmm. bad guy this guy ends up being. But how about Ma Ma? What was her name? I mean, her, the actress is Spivy who plays mm-hmm. her, but the the Ma character. What an awesome like Fellini esque character i mean you know if if alma vidar had been directing this movie he would have chosen her (laughs) you know to play this part i mean just what an interest i mean it's almost like a dick tracy character right yeah so i really liked her too that was great she's in it for two scenes but it's just such this weird presence really interesting but definitely i like this movie movie quite a bit i mean it wasn't like i mean it's no the wrestler Some more work. All I got is weekends. Isn't that when you sit on other dudes' faces? Have you ever seen a one-legged dog? Have a beer with me? <laughs> one beer. Can you have a daughter? No, my daughter, she don't like me very much. You should call her. What do you want from me? I'm an old, broken-down piece of meat, and I deserve to be all alone. I just don't want you to hate me. You see me, but I Two words. Three. Match. Bring it. You know, with a little luck, this could be my ticket back on top. Tell me, friend, can you ask for anything? 80s man, best ever. Guns and Roses. Crew. Yeah, then that Cobain had to come around and ruin it all. <laughs> 90 sucked. 90 sucked. These things that have comforted me, I drive away. My only faith's in the broken bones and bruises I display. You know, the only place I get hurt is out there. I'm really here. This life, you can lose everything you love, everything that loves you. A lot of people told me that I'd never wrestle again. The only one who's going to tell me when I'm through doing my thing is you people here. That'll work. Come here. <laughs> ah. Do you want to go ahead and give a summary of this one? Sure. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> I like the, I'm going to go off the IMDb again uh, synopsis for this one because um, it's 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 really concise and understated. Okay. So according to the IMDb. Synopsis, a faded professional wrestler, Mickey Burke, must retire but finds his quest for a new life outside the ring a dispiriting struggle, to say the least. Um, we see this later on. I one, one of the things I thought when I first saw this movie when it was released in 2008 um, was that I wasn't quite sure that a wrestler of this height, and, and you know, it's more or less implied that he's Hulk Hogan. Alternate, alternate universe, alternate, yeah, yeah, more or less, right? I mean, even the bad, even his main bad guy is is a take on the Iron Sheik called the Ayatollah, right? <laughs> so I did find it a little bit hard that a guy at maybe Hogan's height could drop to this level. However, after seeing the next movie we're going to talk about, maybe I believe it a little bit more. Um, this is just a tremendous film that I could talk about forever, but but I'll go to you first, actually, because I'd really like to hear your take on this one. Yeah, man. So this was definitely this is this is kind of like one of those movies that subconsciously always sticks with you, even though you don't really think about it that often. Because I remember I saw this when I was 
in California and I was doing an internship with a um, like an independent producer. And he had this stack of DVDs and I took one of them to watch on my laptop because my dorm didn't have a TV. And this was one of them. And I had always heard how great this movie was. And when I finally watched it, I was really taken back. You know, it was it was probably towards the end of when you could probably still get away with making movies for really cheap. I mean, I think this was like a six million dollar budget and tell these kind of stories about just like a human interest story about a guy who fell from grace, essentially. And watching it this time again, I just absolutely loved it. I mean, Aronofsky to me is a really excellent director. You know, he doesn't direct a lot of films anymore, but every movie that I've seen of his has like this certain, um, this certain attraction to it, to his characters that are all really different from one another, but they all have like that same uh, quest for longing, if that makes sense. And this was a movie I think had a really good example of like a like um what they call like a cinematic language or a visual language. You know, the, the movie opens up and you spend, I think, the first 10 minutes and you don't see his face at all. You're just traveling with him behind the back. You see him whenever he's getting um whenever he's taking a rest in the locker room, whenever he goes back to his trailer house, when he goes to um you know, when he's going to the store. And to me, I think that's good because you really don't get a sense of like how beaten up this guy looks until you see him. And the first time you see him is whenever he's putting up or when he's looking at his old uh, pictures in his trailer. So I think, you know, kind of having that little mystique kind of set the tone for the rest of the film where you're learning more about him as you go along. But you can kind of see like how this guy is still stuck in the past. So I think that was kind of like a good way to give a visual compliment to the theme of the story. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's a guy, right. Is, is, his trade is physicality. Yeah. Right. And so that's all you get, but you're not going to get the whole thing because you know, that, that spoils it. You know, you have to see, I mean, it really is amazing to see Mickey Rourke this big, this, this um, film was billed as a, as a real comeback vehicle uh, for Mickey Rourke. Uh, actually the interim period between some really great films in that, 80s and early 90s and the not so great films in the late 90s he, he was into boxing for a little while um then he kind of dropped out um before this movie after like fighting movie. fighting Sorry. professionally yeah yeah oh, i didn't know that i was doing some boxing stuff yeah now i don't know these guys get on a weird kick sometime and this was billed as a big comeback for him now i read i had not heard this before so i just read recently that uh, the original cast for this was Nicolas Cage, which I find kind of weird because, again, yeah. this is I think this film works um, as a as a small looking film. You know, again, like like this film reminded me of Sling Blade. OK, in that. OK, it's a character. movie, Right. It's just a movie about this character. And they have this down and out American lifestyle. You know, I mean, really, that's what it's about. For me, this movie is not really about wrestling. Right. This guy could have been, I don't know, a lawyer. Right. He could have been anybody who's washed up and self-destructive or past his prime yeah. because he's not necessarily washed up. Right. As we see in the documentary movies and even in real life. I mean, Hulk Hogan lasted forever. These oh, yeah. guys can go for a while, you know, and, and, and they don't have to go on these low levels like this. But this guy was very self-destructive in that Jake the Snake kind of way that we're yeah. going to talk about later. Um, and I think that's what people buy in this movie is that self-destructive thing. Um, we like to watch that at the movies kind of a lot. You know, Nicolas Cage, yeah. I just brought up, Leaving Las Vegas is a classic example of this. Mm -hmm. But um, I think a lot of us know somebody like this and we can imagine that. Otherwise, you've also got the thing about, again, just too old, just past his prime. And I think people can identify with that too. They know people like that. They feel like that. Well, you, there was another, there was a movie that I kind of associate with. And I think on the surface, that doesn't look like there's that much relation. But did you ever see Heart Eight with, uh, by Paul Thomas Anderson? Oh, no, I did not. I with not Philip Baker that. Hall? Yeah, I, I think this is, this is kind of a similar movie. Obviously, there's a lot of differences. But you know, I think what these two directors really have in common is that they're able to really capture just the human experience. You know, I mean, and not, not to sound like there's anything grand about their stories, but they're able to show really character driven stories that don't get bogged down and try to get them into these complicated plots. You know, there's almost like this semi documentary feel to it without looking cheap. And the character that uh, Philip Baker Hall plays is sort of a similar 
man, you know, he's someone who's kind of isolated, but he still exists in the same universe that he found success in, if that makes sense. Um, but, you know, as far as like um, Mickey Rourke goes, I mean, I, I almost forgot I was watching him perform. Yeah, yeah. I think he kind of, he really did become Randy the Ram. And for me, it was kind of interesting about there's little hints that really just show like how his self-destruction is almost indicated as like a result of his selfishness, you know, cause obviously you have the subplot with his daughter, but you know, even whenever he's playing a video game with um, he's playing like the super Nintendo and he invites the kid in, what are they playing? They're playing him versus someone else. You know, he drives a Ram um, RV, <laughs> you know, it's, it's like, he's always like trying to remind himself of what once was. And that well, just yeah. keeps him in his perpetual state of disappointment. Yeah, that's the thing. That's one one of the key scenes in this movie, and it's going to slip by most people, is when he goes to the bar, mm-hmm. right, with uh, Marissa Tomei, Marissa Tomei's character, right. Who I don't know if I'm supposed to say this nowadays, but is looking quite good in this film. Yeah. Oh, uh, of course, especially you know since and and you know again not being sexist or anything by saying this, but. As they show through the movie, she's much older than she's putting on, right? right. I mean, they show it too. They they get closer to her. They show her without makeup and stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, she's older than she's letting on. But one of the key scenes is when they go to the bar and they're listening to the music, and maybe hate him for a second. He disses Kurt Cobain, but you know they're talking about how great the '80s were. And and you know I heard this not long ago, and and I repeat it all the time. You gotta be careful with this nostalgia stuff, okay? Because very often it's not about that the 80s were better, it's that you liked yourself more in the 80s, right? Your life was better in the 80s, right? And again, I think this is something that resonates with just about anybody, is that nostalgia for when you were younger and you know you could get it up all the time and it's your formative take, your formative years right you could take the punishment well whenever it was that you had the most fun whenever it was yeah. that you were at the height of your success you know in one way or another you know whether that be in business or sex or sport or whatever you're going to think that that's you're going to gravitate towards thinking that time period is better and look yeah, i was there man 80s music versus 90s music i'm sorry doesn't compare doesn't compare. No way. Kurt Cobain is awesome. You were not. You must have been a nineties awesome. guy then. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was your, that's, I, that's your nostalgia. I the eighties, uh, college in the nineties. So yeah, there's there's your answer. Well, I guess so. <laughs> yeah. Another thing I, I like too, and, and this is kind of a more subtle metaphor, um, is how he has a heart attack or he has heart problems. In the movie, and then in the, in the final scene, you know, I'm not going to give anything away, but you can kind of see how that comes into play. And I think it does have like a good um, literary quality to it. Um, but yeah, I, I don't want to give too much away. But like when people see that, I think they're instantly going to reflect back on that earlier. The movie, plot point. the movie is not unpredictable, okay, especially towards the end, right? Because you're so used to this guy shooting himself in the foot. Yeah. Right. And we've seen these beats in the movies before, but there's not necessarily anything bad with predictable as long as the execution is good. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, how predictable is Rocky? You know, and everybody wants to say this is one of the two or three best sports films of all time. Okay. Maybe it is, but it's predictable as hell. It is. And that's not a plus or a minus. It is just the way it is. I mean, it's almost like wrestling in that way. Yeah. You, you kind of know what's going to happen in that final match, right? So, you know, but that doesn't make it bad. It just makes it It's like that Futurama quote that Fry gives. He's like, everybody used to love wrestling, and then we found out it was fixed, just like boxing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, the, the next movie that we're going to be discussing is actually a documentary, and it's called Beyond the Mat from 1999. Quite frankly, what we've come up with is since you are able to regurgitate, you know, on command, um, <laughs> it, it just seems to me that, that, that it's pretty logical that you should be puke. It's all supposed to be fun. The Rock is the most electrifying man in sports entertainment today. It's not supposed to be real. <laughs> 
You're not going to be scared, right? It's going to be okay. You can go on back to the future. You can do anything. Right? Right, yeah. But behind the scenes, it's a whole different story. I hope everyone feels like they got their money's worth out there. And for the first time ever, you'll know the real truth. He's got a puke! He's got a puke! He's got a puke! It is showtime! The hard facts. Worried about him as far as his health. You need a new knee now. She's going to live here the rest of her life, probably, and uh, have seven kids and uh, seven husbands, and she'll always remember tonight, man. The family pain. You make it sound like you don't even want to live. There's times I know. There's a lot of times I don't. The real danger. Shut up! I'm a very violent person, and I'll hurt you. So I get paid to do what I'm doing. That's like with any entertainer. Come face to face with the wrestling world the way it's never been seen before. Gave up Wall Street for Wall Street wasn't fun. Wrestling is fun. It's still hard after all these years. We did it. I just don't want to hurt no more. This is the dance. Beyond the mat. I think we touched a lot of people. Yeah. If you don't mind me saying. And according to IMDb, this is a heartfelt documentary focusing on the day-to-day lives of professional wrestlers. Some on the rise, some on the wane, and others fighting for their lives. Cue dramatic music. <laughs> so yeah, this was uh so I came across this whenever I was, you know, just looking up extra material about the wrestler, because I was kind of curious to see what the preparation was like uh to get everybody in character. Uh, and this was something that Darren Aronofsky had required reading, at least for Mickey Rourke. I'm not sure about any of the other wrestlers that appear in the film. Um, but really, it's a look at what these guys kind of either do to get in to WWE, what they have to do to stay alive, what some of their training and preparation is like, what some guys are like after they have fallen from grace or just left the sport. Um, and I think watching this right after watching the wrestler kind of adds another dimension to that character. And I think maybe in some ways you could get by watching this first, although I do think it works better when you watch the wrestler first. But yeah, I, I thought this was a good documentary. You know, it's uh, you have some uh, guest appearances by v- uh, Vince McMahon. You kind of see what they look for and trying to create superstars out of these people. And um yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I think it's something that's a good product of its time. Uh, you get to see The Rock too, obviously, when he's much younger. Uh, but aside from that, I think it's you know an okay documentary that just peeled the curtain back a little bit, if there ever really was a curtain to be had in pro wrestling. Yeah, I I don't know. I I I wasn't too impressed with this documentary, and to me, it was it was it was rambling. Um, yeah. I mean, in the end, it was, I mean, the last line in the movie is, okay, so he's going, what did we learn? You know, again, like the worst way to end a documentary film. And then he's like, the the conclusion is, they're just like, wrestlers are just like us, only completely different. That's the end. That's what can, that's why I watched this thing. You know, and, and, and the thing is, like, okay, I can understand. Look, I, I am a big fan of Michael Moore. To me, what Michael Moore brings to the documentary table is he's unabashedly doing subjective films. Like, mm-hmm. I wanted to talk to Roger, right? Like, I thought I'd go check this out at Walmart, see if I can buy a gun, right. you know, and whatever, right? And it also goes on this sort of stream of consciousness kick. Right. So it's like you don't know where he's going to go because because I don't know if he knows where he's going to go with this. Right. He ends up taking a look at the big picture. OK, this movie could have been that way. And it was it, it starts like that. Right. It's very subjective. It's like I like wrestling. I wonder what it is. I want to do more about these guys. Somebody gave me funding for my documentary. No, it doesn't really say that. But that's that's the truth. Right. Um, and and he goes on like that. But here's the thing. The main focuses of this story 
were just not interesting to me. Yeah. Was the did the Terry Funk story really have anything to it besides this no. is a guy that has no knees and no, is going to retire? Really. I mean, I mean, let me do the Larry Bird story. It's a lot more fun. Um, you know, the the Mick Foley story. I mean, you know, and supposedly he has this catharsis where his kids don't like seeing him get beat up, so he's going to retire. And then, like, you you go online and you find out he's back in, like, two years later. It's what? Well, you know, I kind of think this has, like, a Mondo quality to it. You know, it's sort of like a – I don't think it was intended to be this way, but it does have like that sort of shock factor where I kind of feel like it is supposed – it wants to show you those sort of extreme cases of having no legs. And the guy – what was the guy in the beginning, the one that had to throw – force himself to throw up? What was his name? Well, he played on the Denver Broncos. I yeah. his name, but Vince wanted to bill him as puke. Yeah, and yeah, I think that was <laughs> I, I think that's where like the Mondo quality came in, where it was kind of ridiculousness, but also shock value too. So well, I guess see, I'm glad what... you brought up shock value because this was the thing. The Jake the Snake Roberts stuff, mm-hmm. I felt was only in there for shock value. Yeah. I mean, he was doing the he was doing the daytime talk show thing, right? Where he's like well, I decided to set him up with his daughter who he hadn't seen in 10 years or whatever. And then, you know, that again, that's like the Maury Povich thing, right? right. It's like mixing up the black ants and the red ants. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, for the sake of maybe I'll get, you know, two minutes worth of good film. You know, it's just like, to, I don't know. To me, again, it just, I mean, maybe if they had stuck with the full, you know, done like a hoop dreams thing. Where you yeah. follow one guy's line and another guy's line in parallel. You know, I just, yeah. I, I wanted some focus. He couldn't pull off, for me, he couldn't pull off the stream of consciousness thing. Yeah, it just I agree. didn't, it didn't work. And nobody in this thing comes off as sympathetic. Nobody at all. Yeah. Probably the one that comes off the best is Vince. Only because he doesn't come off as much of an asshole as he probably really right. is. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's just like so to me. I I don't know. I was I was kind of I was kind of frustrated by this because yeah. there was something here, but I don't know. It's just there was no diamond in the rough. There was only rough here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't feel bad if you don't get this head to this one on your watch list, folks. <laughs> well, it's free and it's on YouTube, so yeah. I mean, like, no harm, no foul in that respect. I mean, just don't right. be expecting too much. Or you want to kick it off with uh, Fighting With My Family? Sure. Let's go to Fighting With My Family. Okay. Fighting With My Family is a 2019 film based on a true story. Hey, one of my favorites. It's a tale of probably still active WWE wrestler Paige, who started as an amateur wrestler in England that, as the title said, fought with her family. I'm watching that. Give me the remote. No. Give it. It's off. Zach, what the bloody hell do you think you're doing? You really want to choke her out in a lot of fingers? Yeah. Now pull it tight. Oh, oh yeah. Now she's in trouble. Oh, wait, I know you. You're from that weird family, aren't you? We're not weird. We don't like wrestling. How do you know if you've never been? I've never had rectal bleeding before, but I'm pretty sure I'm not a fan of that. <laughs> How about I shove her head up your ass and then we can find out? Hello? My name is Hutch Morgan. I'm calling from WWE. We'd like both of you to come try out for us. No! WWE! It's all fake anyways. Hey, what? Sorry about that. It's The Rock! We're huge fans. Thank you so much. What advice would you give us? We want to be the next you. What are your names again? My name. It doesn't matter what your names are. You walk around here interrupting The Rock you like you haven't seen the sun in 20 years. You like you just stepped out of Oliver Twist. Please, sir, may I have some more advice, sir? You want some advice? Here's The Rock's advice. Shut your mouth. Thanks, Dwayne. Got it. Good morning, wrestling nerds. Well, this is where we see whether or not you get to go on to WWE. This is our shot, Zach. Hello. Why do you want to wrestle? I'm the toughest bastard in any room. Probably shouldn't swear, not when there's ladies present. Sorry, miss. Sorry about that. If I call your name, that means you'll be coming with me to Florida. Paige. Thank you all very much. You have to take my brother. No one deserves this more than Zach. I wish you the best, son. But this is the end of the line for you. Do you know what it's like to want one thing in life? And then your own sister takes it away from you. It was my dream, too. I have no idea who I'm supposed to be out there. 
You're not just doing this for you. You're doing it for the family. Paige, I myself have come from a wrestling family too. I know exactly what it means to you. But don't worry about being the next me. Be the first you. What? It's Dwayne Johnson. How are you? Prove it. If you smell what the rock is cooking. Yeah, and I'm Vin Diesel, mate. I'm sorry. Um, okay, for me, I, I, I'm glad that we decided to do this one in this show and do it last. Because for me, okay, not a great film. Uh, very predictable film. Mm -hmm. It begins, the first 10, 15, 20 minutes are really charming and funny. You know, basically, the bits in England, right? With yeah. Nick Frost and Lena Headley, who are both very big deals in England. You know, they, they're very great comedic actors, uh, both on the TV and film and stage as well. So, you know, really great and really just funny. The stuff with the little kids is great. Uh, the stuff when they're older is great. Now they're just trying to get by, running this little ragtag professional wrestling league. Uh, and, of course, there's brother Zach Zodiac and he who would become Paige in the WWE. Now this is basically, like, for me, what this is, what's important to this movie and what's interesting about this movie, aside from the funny bits at the beginning, was sort of the behind-the-scenes stuff of what is let's face it, a mature sports franchise at mm -hmm. this point, right? You look at, you go from, you know, the vision of, of, of this game in the 60s, you know, in Requiem for a Heavyweight. You go through the sort of, you know, burn, burn fast, die hard, you know, of the 80s and 90s, you know, in, in the, the wrestler. And now you've got something that really resembles a professional sport that resembles, you know, uh, a league which is protecting their product, right. players, and 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 also logos and brands and stuff like that. Um, and it reminds me of of the state that the NBA was at in the 1990s. You know, David Stern was sort of flexing his muscles after the dream team. You know, he's got this international presence. He wants to get even bigger. And the result is all these NBA crossover movies, right? You had Forget Paris with Billy Crystal playing the NBA referee. You had Eddie with Whoopi Goldberg playing the New York Knicks coach. You had Like Mike, which was the little big league of basketball where he's taking on all these NBA players. Right. And in fact... In fact, the movie most associated with 90s basketball, Space Jam, is the one in which the NBA least participated in, basically, in the 90s. There's a little bit in there, but not much. No logos of the NBA uh, are in that movie. So, to me, this, is, this movie was, again, an interesting look at behind-the-scenes stuff, but just, you know, sort of cultural marketing, sort of cultural benchmark. That yeah. you know, hey WWE, it should be considered with NASCAR and NFL and NHL. I liked. Uh, I saw a video on YouTube where they uh, someone was at a, an event and they showed like on the big screen. I think it was at the Staples Center. Them filming the scene, the uh, ending. <laughs> so that was that was that was cool to see. But yeah, I, I didn't know too much about Paige. I do think she is retired now. From what I saw, oh. I wasn't sure what what the deal was. Um, but yeah, I, I thought, you know, for what I was expecting, I think it did an okay job. You know, I think yeah. it's something that was different from the other films that we watched for the slate that, you know, I think was a good change of pace. You know, I thought I, I like how The Rock was involved in the movie, like as a producer, I think. But I like how he didn't try to invest himself too much in this, right? Because this <laughs> kind of feels like his territory where he's going to hire three different writers to put himself in and have like this really big presence in the film. I like how he just kind of stepped back and let everybody else did their job. And I do think we had like some decent performances in here. I mean, I liked Vince Vaughn in this movie and I think yeah, he kind of, yeah, I think, I think he really does well when he's not trying to be completely funny all the time and he's not trying to be super serious either. I think the only time I the only performance I think I've liked of his where he was really kind of that gruff uh, character was probably True Detective season two. 
I don't know if you saw that one, but um, yeah, I, I think I think he had a good a good role in this film and did a good job with what he was doing. Uh, but yeah, yeah, it's an outsider story about someone, uh, you know, a girl finding her groove. I thought it had some good choreography, some good wrestling scenes in here. Um, but as far as that, like you said, it is a predictable story yeah. based off a true story. And, I didn't, I didn't see it. Apparently, this was actually there was a documentary made on the subject yeah. first, and I didn't, I didn't see that. But I, I'm curious to see how it compares. You know what kind of liberties were taken? Well, I mean, I mean, the thing is, with a movie like this, at this point, it's a sports movie, right? So yeah. you can tell where they cut corners. I mean, she's in the NXT for what ten minutes? Yeah, you know, and she was champion of that league. You know, right. so we could have had much more of that. But you know, I mean, for me again, this is a piffle, right? This movie is a piffle. However, I did yeah. want to comment on the rock. The Rock, of course, is always a plus to have in the movie, right? He's going to put butts in seats. And the truth is, he's watchable, right? He's really, really likable. He's got all that yeah. charisma, right? He's going to be president someday, right? So, so you know, it, it's always good to have him. But what this movie really lacked, this movie probably would have gotten one more star from me if we were doing star ratings. Had they had, because what this movie was lacking was Vince. When when they told her she was moving up to the big leagues, that should have been Vince McMahon, right? There's no um, see. I'm not. I can't consider this a spoiler because there's no suspense when they go. Oh, someone wants to meet you up here. You know, there's no suspense. We've already seen The Rock a couple of times in this movie. We know it's going to be The Rock. Yeah, right. right? I was thinking it was going to be Vince. You needed Vince in there to give a monologue about congratulations. You've made it to the WWE. It's the greatest sports entertainment franchise in the universe. You know, he needed that in there. Oh, my God. I was so let down by that. I mean, this yeah, is that's... not a great movie, but yeah, they left a couple of key scenes on the table. The other one was this. You know, they told us that this stuff is scripted throughout, right? So the scene mm -hmm. that we were missing is, why can't they have her scripting the match between her and the champion? who was yeah. portrayed as someone who didn't want to give up the title. Right. That scene was left on the floor. That would have been awesome. You know, it would have been like she tried to push her around and then Paige could have stood up for herself and said, no, we're going to do it like this. Yeah. You know, that would have been great. So, you know, I mean, even in its own limited way, it still could have been a little bit better, this movie. But like I say, it gives you a look at, at something you don't always see in sports. Right. In this yes. back WWE. So I like it for that. Yeah, for 2019, I think it was a pretty pretty good story. <laughs> yes, sir. Yeah, good for the good for the, good for the times. For right all right, all right, man. That concludes our episode for pro wrestling. Hope you all enjoy. So grab your popcorn, put on your headphones, and enjoy. And <laughs> all right, everybody, take care. assistant editor, everything was about to change, for she was about to discover the awesome attractiveness of Row 1 brand retro sports paraphernalia items, thanks to Orville Mulligan, sports writer. And there it is. Wow, Orville, that's really the bee's knees. Isn't it just? A poster-sized replica of the actual 1909 World Series program cover. I can see that. But where did you get it? And where'd you get it framed? I ordered it from the Row 1 website, where over 6,000 items of sports memorabilia from the 1880s to the 1990s are available for reproduction in multiple sizes and in several different materials, with over a dozen styles of frame to choose from for prints like this. Well, I'm sure Mr. Delft would love to put up more of these in the office, but I'm equally as sure they're beyond this newspaper's budget. <laughs> Not at all, my dear Marla. See for yourself. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com slash row one. Sportshistorynetwork.com slash row one.
Oh my, these are good prices. Oh, and look at this stuff. Oklahoma, Nebraska football, college basketball art, Michael Jordan items. And so Retro it was that Marla Delt discovered the splendiferous magic of Row One Sports memorabilia arts and prints. You can too by visiting sportshistorynetwork.com slash row one. That's R-O-W number one today for access to the full Row One catalog of gallery prints and gifts like t-shirts, long sleeve shirts, telephone cases, coffee mugs, blankets, pillows, towels, and even shower curtains. Act today for a 15% discount off all prints with coupon code SHN15 and 20% off all other items with coupon code SHN20 at checkout. And keep your dial locked to the Sports History Network for the exciting chronicles of the 1920 sports world in Orville Mulligan, sports writer, coming soon. Oh, yes,